Well, 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 my friends, here we are again. Welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. I think this might be episode number 7070. Whoa, my phone was causing some feedback there. Not sure if you heard that. Cannot turn my phone off today. It has been uh, quite a morning, I guess you could say. My, I turn my phone off at night. Um, I probably shouldn't because of like family stuff and emergency stuff, but my wife always leaves hers on. And at 4.30 this morning... Her phone just blew up, and I was like, you know how you can just sometimes feel that the call coming in, especially at a time like 4.30 in the morning, you're like, this is, something's going on. So sure enough, it was some friends of ours, younger, a gen, I would call them a generation younger, and she said, my water broke, and we're on the way to the hospital, and can you take, I'm going to spell it out, P-A-C-O who is a pit bull mix of some kind. I'm not sure PACO knows what he is, but he's here. He's at my feet. He's my little my little companion. He's my shadow, and we're going to have him for a couple of days. They were over here by 5 o'clock in the morning, and when I opened the door, I could hear her in labor in the car. And they made it. They made it to the hospital, and we now have a little baby boy, that is going to be part of the part of the tribe here of our friends and circle of friends, which is a pretty cool thing. And uh, yeah, so it's been it's been quite a day. Also, need to mention how uh, crazy things are in the work work world, the work front. I did my first public event in almost three years for Blurb last week. Review Santa Fe, the book fair, which was for the first hour was open to VIPs and then open to the public for three or four hours. I stood on that concrete floor in the farmer's market for whatever, five hours, and I was literally sore the next day. <clears throat> I'm out of shape when it comes to doing shows, really. It sounds crazy. Just wrangling a uh, Pelican case full of books, which probably weighs about a ton, and uh, getting that in and out of the car. I think I, I think I gave birth to my own baby getting that in and out of the car. But anyway, Blurb is exploding. We have two big initiative things that we're working on, also launching a, another brand, which is happening as we speak. And um, all I'll say is, yeah, it's a lot. But but if you're new to this podcast, you're probably like, wow, this is so good so far. Uh, but you're probably wondering, like, who is this for? And why would I listen to this podcast? Well, if you're someone, and be honest, because I know you're out there, and you and I are one and the same, if you're addicted to croc swallow films on YouTube, then I think the programming here is going to make you very happy. You're, you found your home, friend, stranger. If you are addicted to croc, C-R-O-C, croc swallow films on YouTube, yes, this is a subcategory, a mini genre of films of crocodiles swallowing their prey. And frankly, I can't get enough of it. I think I've come dangerously close to losing myself over the past couple of weeks because I dig watching a croc swallow a baby hippo. I just find something madly entertaining about that, and hopefully you will too. Okay, we're moving on. I typically start with who this podcast is for, then we talk about a hero of the week, and we talk about a goat of the week. And when I say goat, I do not mean greatest of all time. I mean goat as in ass, as in, let's say, Ted Cruz. Like, he's a pretty good example of what, like, what the goat would be. And he's pretty good, like, week to week. He's definitely not on my goat list this week. He could be. He definitely could be, because I am going to talk about something in a minute. Um, I think I'm going to talk about, well, he might be on my goat list, but he's not, like, the forefront. The hero, let's start there. The hero of the week... I've got to go back to to, a, to an old faithful because I am continually impressed with what's going on, although I think the media has kind of distorted the success level, but I am going with Ukrainian people in general, not just the military, who's kicking some ass, but they've got a long way to go. There's still, I think, only about 50% or maybe less of the lands that were originally taken on the original Russian invasion have been... Uh, taken back, but they're doing a heck of a lot better than anyone thought they would. Uh, but the people themselves, just the overall general population in terms of their tenacity and their ability to adapt to a rapidly changing front line and winter 
rapidly approaching. It's going to get ugly. Because the goat of the week, Mr. Vladdy Putin, um, has basically botched this in every single possible way he could. Not only has he completely exposed himself to the rest of the world, and namely exposed the fact that his military is inept in a lot of ways, but he's also proven that he is a world-class war criminal by continuing to missile and mortar and artillery attack civilian infrastructure and civilian targets. Um, you know, he's hitting power plants. He's nuke. He's arti- sending artillery into the into the nuke plants. He's hitting apartment complexes. He is a savage. And the thing is, he's my goat of the week. My hero, Ukraine. <clears throat> my goat once again, Vladdy. Vladdy is a relic of the Cold War. He's fighting a war that doesn't exist. And he's fighting a war in his mind, plus he has absolutely not a single person around him who has the authority to actually tell him the truth. Sound familiar here in America, people? Sound a little bit familiar of a period we just passed through? Yeah, kind of the same. Um, but but there's also a lot of other people fighting for um, fighting for my go to the week. This lake woman in uh, Arizona who was running for governor, I cannot remember. Christy Lake, is that her name? Carrie Lake. Um, man, what a wacko that woman is. Um, it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. Everyone dodged a bullet with her not getting elected because, man, I heard one presser with that woman, and she probably said 20 of the most ignorant, arrogant, idiotic statements I've heard from a politician in a long time. And in, this, in the climate in America, that is saying something. If one person can rip off 20 things that outdo every other lunatic in our political asylum, that's saying something. And I especially loved her take on the media. I just thought it was hilarious where she's like, I am going to be your worst enemy and we are going to reinvent this. I mean, like who, what kind of a moron says that kind of stuff? Um, it just it's just good. You know, it's it's amazing to me actually that she lost because Arizona's pretty conservative. I lived there for a while. Um there's definitely a lot of far right folks uh walking around on that that piece of earth, but um was really glad that she lost. I just think she's a toxin. She's toxic to it doesn't matter again, pull out the political party. That's just a toxic human being that has no place in politics or in public office. Um the other last go to the week is going to be silly Billy Barr. I mean, this dude just will not go away. Like, dude, write your book and retire and go away. But no, he's got to, he keeps being interviewed because apparently some network out there could be CNN, could be MSNBC, could be whatever, Fox. It doesn't matter. He pops up from time to time. These people are so egotistical and they're just trying to cling to whatever sense of power he has. But, but Billy, silly Billy Barr's big take on the day was, that if reelected, Trump was going to, quote, burn down the entire house. Okay, like he wasn't trying to do that in his first term, like that wasn't bad enough. Now he's going to come back and burn the house down. But what silly Billy Barr is neglecting to add to this little conversation is that Trump is a fool. He's a buffoon that could never do any of this stuff on his own. He is surrounded by people who allow him and help him and facilitate for him to do the damage that he does. And one of these people from his first administration, yeah, you guessed it, silly Billy Barr. Barr was one of these people that f- helped facilitate a lot of Trump's evil during his first, uh, his first campaign, I mean, his first uh, his administration. You know, he was an enabler of epic proportion. You know, he lied to the public about pretty much every single thing he did while he was in his role. He lied to get into the role. He lied during the role. He lied after the role. And it wasn't until the election was over and January 6th was over and that, you know, his star started to fade that Barr started to come out and tell the truth. And and it's, you know, a pseudo version of the truth through Bill Barr. But you know, Trump couldn't do any of this stuff on his own. He's a buffoon. So he needs enablers, and the list is long, and Silly Billy's on there. You could throw 
Mike McCarthy on there and, and Lindsey and Ted Cruz and the rest of them. I mean, again, it's always easy to get the go to the week. It's the hero of the week that, that you know, and I think that's probably historically. I think humans have an inerrant, uh, an inherent evilness in our DNA. I think everyone has it. I think most people, thankfully, have a way of controlling it or tamping it down or getting it almost to near extinction, but a lot of people don't. And what's rapidly changing is the reality that you can celebrate that in yourself now in in public in America. And heck, people don't even seem to mind. So I don't know. Maybe maybe times are a-changing. Okay, let's move on. Who is this for? Anyone addicted to Croc Swallow Films? Our hero of the week, Ukraine. Our go to the week is Vladdy Putin once again. I feel like this is the you know the top twenty countdown, and there's a popular song that just keeps popping up to the top. And Putin every week just does something that you're like, good grief, you know. Once again, not good, not good. Um, again, you know, Putin has a chance right now, even uh, even after all of the awful stuff that he's done in this war, he still has a chance to like resurrect this situation and turn it around. And he won't. He will double down and keep doubling down on dumb the entire time because that's this Cold War relic mentality where they would never admit. It's the Pablo Escobar mentality. They would never, ever admit to doing anything wrong, no matter how egregious. You blow an airliner out of the out of the sky like uh, Escobar, and he's going to blame someone else, even though 100% everyone knows it was him. He's like, oh, no, no, I would, you know, I didn't do that. I would never do that. Yeah, quite a world we live in. Point number one, man, what's happening in the crypto world? Uh, Crypto, look, I am no expert on crypto, far from it. And I am no expert on the financial markets, far from it. In fact, I'm not really an expert on anything. I've mentioned this before. Other than knowing I'm not an expert, I think that's probably my strongest suit is knowing that my limitations. But from outer space, the second that crypto arrived on the scene, on the global scene, from outer space, even someone with my limited knowledge looked at this and said, man, this is a house of cards. This feels like what was happening moments before the 2008 financial collapse, when you read about what was happening in these high-frequency trading uh, outfits, when you, when you read about what was happening at the CEO level of these financial institutions, the, the ineptness, the absolute lack of information, the lack of knowledge, the lack of caring, and, and frankly, all caps underlined the greed that was happening. Um, credit default swaps and high-frequency trading, two things in particular where you were like, this sounds bad from every single angle. And that's kind of what crypto felt like to me. I actually kind of think that the NFT scene feels a little bit this way as well. Clearly, it's not on the scale of the crypto thing, but the sort of arms race, greedy people with no track record selling traditional artwork, suddenly putting $50,000 price tags on a JPEG and getting people to buy into this. And then you look at the art world and you look at the photo art world and realize that the players behind the scenes are talking to one another saying, look, we need to make this into something because there's money to be made. And so the public's like, why do I want a JPEG? And the art world's like, no, 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 it's not just a JPEG. You really want this. And look, this one just sold for $100,000. And you look and go, well, I've never even heard of that person. And it's a picture of his foot. And um, he has no you know, credibility in the art world. He has no track record. He's never done anything. But wow, this is going to sell for hundred grand, And maybe there's a sucker out there. Or maybe the people who organize the sale are in on it to try to say, look, if we get maybe together behind the scenes and someone buy this as a, as a conglomerate then and maybe the money's returned afterwards but it makes it look like this is something new i don't know i don't trust anyone anymore zero no trust nada not even not even close um very 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 few things or people in this world would i trust my father taught me that and it's even worse now than it was back in the day when he sat me down. Remember when your dad would sit you down? It was like a serious conversation. Could have been the birds and the bees conversation. Could have been don't get someone pregnant conversation. 
could have been there is such thing as right and wrong conversation. Those were great moments and also some of the most awkward moments in human history. I got the birds and the bees conversation in a duck blind on the Texas coast hunting ducks. I was trapped. I mean, there was nowhere to go. It's dad and I took an airboat out into the middle of the bay into a duck blind. And so not, I mean, I was completely isolated. I wanted to crawl out of that duck blind and start swimming. This is how awkward it was because my dad was super awkward anyway. And then I could just tell something was up because he was fidgeting and his like mouth was dry and he was like going to lay this out. I just knew something bad was coming. And then it was his awkward bumbling explanation of like the birds and the bees and like what would transpire when I was a little bit older. And it's just, I just blocked it out. It was like, find a happy place, curl up Jim Carrey style in the bathroom when sea bass is coming to beat him up and you're like, find a happy place, find a happy place. Yeah, it was awkward. So crypto to me, this whole thing with FTX um, crashing down, I am not in the least bit surprised this happened. And if you read about what was transpiring behind the scenes of, of um, FTX, it is insane that no one stepped in and put a stop to it earlier. Because I don't think there's anyone patrolling that world. I don't think there's any kind of regulation. And the thing is, with regulation, the government is always going to go too far. And the government's looking and saying, we want our piece of the pie. So they're going to do whatever it is to fill their coffers, regardless of whether it's ethical or not, they're going to do that. So it's a fine line between asking for regulation and getting what the government is going to give you, which is always going to overstep. That's just the nature of the beast, it seems. So um, I was not surprised by the, the FTX demise or the reports of what was happening behind the scenes with the founder and his lifestyle. And this is pretty common. I mean, now it's, this happens all the time. It's like, it's like mass shootings in America. There was one today at Walmart. There was one at the nightclub two days ago. There's so many. It happens pretty much every day. Somebody's going to go out with an AR and shoot up a, a, a place somewhere. That's just the culture we've built here. And um, I'm going to get to more of that in a minute. But anyway, crypto was my first point. Um, it's the Wild West. I'm sure there's a handful of people making money on this and a lot of people just getting taken, taken to the cleaners. And uh, buyer beware. Point number two. If you think at any point in time, if you're, if you're an optimist, if you're a dreamer, if at any one point in time you find yourself thinking, you know, I think things are going to work out. I think this climate change things, we're going to solve that. I think the corruption and greed and violence and scandals and all this stuff, I think we're going to get a handle on this. and We're going to turn this planet around. First of all, good on you. I'm happy for you. Maybe there's someone out there like that. Um, I love people who look at life through rose-colored glasses. My wife is one of these people. Her mother was one of these people. I actually do really like that. I like people who are overtly positive. Sadly, I have, a, I have that sort of realist gene in the middle where I'm like, hmm, because if at any second you think things are going to be okay, I'm just going to utter one, one word, and you will know that it will never be right and we have no chance. And that word is FIFA. FIFA, yes, the international governing body of football, otherwise known as soccer, otherwise known as like a roadside bathroom. Don't touch anything with your hands. That's what FIFA is. And if you don't know about FIFA, just know that it is, if not, it's arguably the most corrupt sporting institution in the history of the world. And it, they're at the point where they don't even try to hide it. Because it's kind of like the, again, the buffoonery of a bad politician who gets caught on camera doing something or saying something and then turns around and says, I never did that or said that. And then you're they're like, here's the film, dude. FIFA, in their infinite wisdom, awarded this year's World Cup to Qatar. And this is a country that should have never, ever, ever had uh, this awarded to them. They have one of the worst human rights violations uh, records going and um, there's already been story after story after story of the corruption that transpired behind the scenes for Cotter to get the bid, like individuals receiving million dollars in cash, several different people. FIFA has a history of corruption that is literally unparalleled in the sporting universe. It's impressive. And my only question is this, how the hell do I get a job with FIFA? Because it sounds awesome. 
I mean, it kind of sounds like you can do anything you want and kind of make your salary is kind of here's a blank check. Tell us what you're thinking. That sounds amazing. I mean, if FIFA came calling, I'd be right there. I would be Sunday best, resume, portfolio, what can I do to be part of your organization? Because, man, there are no rules. What's, watching Cotter get the bid, watching what transpired in the, in the interim when that country had to build dozens of hotels, soccer stadiums, and we're talking about a country where it's literally broiling. Thousands of workers died in the process. They have a terrible, as I mentioned before, terrible human rights record, especially because there's only something like less than 200,000 Qataris in the world. And so they import all their labor and the labor conditions and the work conditions and the, and the worker violations are epic. They're legendary. And so it's been bad. And what's happened so far with journalists being detained and crackdowns, you know, you're getting a, a little glimpse of what it's like in Cotter on a daily basis. It is not a place I would want to live. I'd love to go photograph there. But having made this podcast, I've pretty much assured myself I will never be allowed into the country. Uh, but it would be, you know, an interesting place to work. But man, and on the flip side, World Cup is the best and worst about the world. It really is. Um, based on the organization and what I just mentioned about the host country and the politics and the corruption and the crime and the greed, then you have the play on the field. And I am one of the, these uh, Americans who actually really loves World Cup. I always have. And um, by the way, Uruguay is a slam dunk to win. Every, every time there's a World Cup, I go all in on Uruguay. So I don't want to hear any of you people out there talking about France or Brazil or Germany or any of those other schlub countries that have no chance at all because Uruguay is fielded with the biter, as we all know, Suarez, who can bite better than anyone in any team anywhere in the world, and Cavalli, who's just a man-god that I'm just, you know, he's the only reason I'm still alive is because his poster is above my desk right now. So those two um, are, they're probably like 75 years old, each of them, but they're, they're, they're fronting for, for Uruguay, and I'm still going all in on Uruguay. So if, if you have another team, I don't want to hear it because your team sucks. So anyway, they're threatening journalists, the corruption, the alcohol bans, all kinds of things going down over there. But FIFA um, legitimately, if, if FIFA came and, asked, and offered me a job, I would seriously consider it just to be around an organization like that and to see what I could possibly get away with. I think that would be an interesting chapter because I've never done that in my life. I've never been a corrupt guy. I've never been a greed guy. I've never been a get over on someone else for personal gain guy. I've just never done that. It's not in my DNA. And I think FIFA might bring it out of me in the best possible way. Number three, um, if I ever hear someone else in the political realm, whether Dem or, or Repub or Indy or whoever else, if I ever hear another one of these idiots say, our thoughts and prayers are with the families, that's it. Can we just stop for the love of God? See what I did there? See how I flicked that around? For the love of God, stop saying our thoughts and prayers. The nightclub shooting two days ago, Jill Biden, Jill and I, our thoughts and prayers are with the families. I don't care. I don't care about your thoughts and prayers. That does absolutely nothing. The worst is, again, I'm going back to the well here. Ted Cruz is the worst example of this. You know, glory be to God. He'll do something horrible or say something horrible and then mask it under glory be to God. And he puts his hands up in the air like there's something happening. You know, obviously this is a scam of epic proportion. And anytime in America, and for your Euro types out there or anyone from Asia or Latin America or really anywhere else in the world, this is what happens in America. Someone goes into a place publicly with an AR, blazes away, kills a bunch of people. The repubs are in bed with, with the gun lobby. They're never going to change uh, policy anytime soon because those guys are making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in campaign funds from the gun lobby. And so they're stuck because they want the money. They want to stay in power and they want the money. And so they're never going to do anything to take any of these toys away because that's their livelihood. And so the Dems act all up in arms. 
And um, when the shootings happen, Republicans are famous for our thoughts and prayers are with the family. This Greg Abbott in Texas, Ted Cruz in Texas, and really all over the country. And the Dems do it too. It's not just the Republicans. It's this, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. You know what? Separation of church and state. I don't care about your religion, and I don't care about your thoughts and prayers. That does zero. What does zero is legislation and saying we're going to ban X, Y, and Z because there's no real reason. People don't hunt with those. There's no real reason to have those. Again, grew up shooting, grew up hunting, don't need those at all. I'm a realist. Once again, I'm not so poisoned by being on one side of the fence or the other that I can't see straight, which is many of my friends and family members are poisoned. I'm just sick of thoughts and prayers expression. You've basically, all of these people doing this have taken 100% of the relevancy and meaning of that phrase, thoughts and prayers, and just made it meaningless because you're tying it to a political issue and you clearly do not mean it at all. Zero. Does Ted Cruz mean thoughts and prayers and glory be to God when he's saying this? Absolutely not. He has he is another buffoon that is just doing whatever he can to stay in power. And again, not just the repubs, happens on both sides. Don't be hating like me. I, I make a living out of hating. It's fun. It keeps me warm. It was 17 degrees this morning. I'll take what I can get. Okay, cool. On an upbeat level here, moving on, I may or may not have just purchased a new camera and two lenses and maybe at some point we'll purchase a third lens and potentially a second camera. But let me explain. Someone this morning said, oh, you bought a Fuji X-T5. No, I did not. I've held a Fuji X-T5, and it's great, fine, small, regular, feels like the other X-Ts, has a new battery, which is huge, and has the new sensor, the 40 meg sensor. And by the way, those files out of that camera look damn good. They were not my files. They were my friend's files, but they looked really good. And I just saw one quickly and I was like whoa that looks good kind of all I needed to know camera handles and functions features just like the four and the three and the two and the one so if you're in that realm you're in that family there you go there's my complete review um, I actually bought the Fuji X-H2S which is one of two X-H2 models that came out recently one is the S and one is just the straight straight X-H2 the straight X-H2 has the new 40 megapixel sensor which is great but the X-H2S has a 26-megapixel stacked CMOS sensor. And what that means is, in layman's terms, yes, you're getting a small, smaller file size with 26 megs as, as compared to 40. But the stacked CMOS sensor allows this thing to transfer data and, and move very, very quickly. It has a slightly faster autofocus system with a little bit better autofocus tracking. And it's a camera that's really designed for the motion side of the equation. The X-H2, the straight two, to me is a little bit more of a still-based, even though it does video just fine. Um, it's really, that 40 megapixel file to me is more about stills than it is about the motion side. So the X-H2S was more of a pure hybrid camera, so combination of stills and and uh, video. So for me, that's what I was after. It's, it's the more expensive of the two. The S is a little pricier than the X-H2. But I think it'll be interesting. And then I bought the 2314 and the 3314, the new ones, which are the lenses that are optimized for the new larger sensor. Um, and eventually, that's what leads me. So I bought those two, those two fixed short lenses. They're, they do make a 150 to 600 that I would like to have, but strictly for birding. But it's pricey, and how often am I getting a chance to go birding? And I already have the 50, one, 50 to 140 with a 2x converter, which sucks for birding, but it's the closest thing I have. And guess what? I'm going to live with it. So if my birding stuff sucks, whatever. Um, not like I'm going to be a world-class birding photographer anytime soon, because by the way, the world is filled with world-class birding photographers. I kid you not. I see stuff all the time that is mind-blowingly good. There's thousands of these people. There's 27 million Americans alone who identify as birders. So if you consider that kind of math, 27 million people who really are adamant birders, and then you throw in the number of those people who are photo geeks, you're going to have a lot of good birding people out there. Birding photography to me is a strictly personal thing. It's just cataloging and looking at species I don't know anything about. So it's more of an educational thing. Do I need to drop 2K on a lens to do that? Probably not. If someone gave me that lens, absolutely I would use it. Is that going to happen? No. The other camera that I will probably end up with at some point is a GFX 100. 
um, with their with the short little pancake. I think it's probably a 50 mil lens or a 45, something like that. I could definitely do some damage in the still world with that camera. I know it. It's sort of tailor-made for me. But again, do I need to buy that again now? Because I mentioned very early in this podcast how busy I am. The goal is to get back in the field and do projects. But is that going to happen? Probably not. If I have to be 100% transparent and honest about that, not unless something changes. Now, here's the thing. I think it's actually critical for my job to be in the field doing stories because um, there's something I'm going to get to in a minute, the last point of this podcast about what happened recently um, with some of my work that's been kind of caught me completely out of right field by surprise. But that's where I'm at now. Fuji X-H2S 23-14-33-14, maybe a 150-600 at some point, and maybe a GFX. I think the GFX would be really interesting, especially going out with just stills and just saying, look, I'm going to do a still project with this camera and the one lens and just celebrate that sort of resolution. I think that that would be kind of fun because I've never had a camera with that kind of resolution and it would be fun to see what I could pull off with that. Interesting. Point number five, I'm just about to roll 250 miles on my new Salsa Titanium rebuild, if you will. And uh, I'm not sure if I've had a lot of time to talk about this bike. Um, for those of you who don't know, my original Salsa Fargo from 2013 broke. I snapped the frame riding after probably somewhere between 15 and 20,000 miles. Salsa, believe it or not, um, Goodwill replaced that frame with a modern titanium frame and fork, which is an unbelievable combination uh, of parts. It's just a gorgeous bike. Because they Goodwill replaced it, I didn't have to buy the frame. I spent money and replaced the parts with carbon components, rims, cranks, seat post, um, and also turned the bike into a single speed. And my goal with this has been to track the mileage that I'm using, that I'm uh, racking up on the bike, and then translating that into cost savings from not having to drive my van. Since I bought, since I got the bike back, I have put gas in the van one time, and I still have three-quarters of a tank. I've done everything else on the bicycle. So I'm about to hit 250 miles. That's about $125 saved, Um, and that's a conservative estimate. I'm actually using numbers that are far lower than I could. I'm not using 58 cents a mile. I'm using 50 cents a mile. Um, and so there's a lot of things that it's probably I'm saving more, but I wanted to err on the safe side because of there's skeptics out there that would say, oh, what do you, that doesn't matter. That's not a lot of money. The goal is to take that 150 savings and invest it in a micro investing platform that will then allow me to see what I'm capable of, of producing from the money saved by using a bicycle. I just love riding. And it's so nice to go into town and not have to drive. And I live in a small town where there's hardly any traffic and it's easy to park. And there's, you know, it's super easy to drive here. But it's even better to ride in on the bike and be able to do the stuff that 90% of our errands we can do on a bicycle. Not everybody. I know some of you are country dwellers. I know some of you have medical conditions. I know some of you live in places where it's incredibly dangerous to ride. There's no infrastructure. All of those things, they are completely legitimate complaints about cycling in America. This is not a serious endeavor here for most of the population. And again, the corruption level to keep it that way is kind of astounding when you figure out the power of oil and gas lobby, the auto lobby, and what they do to things like cycling infrastructure, the insurance industry, making it nearly impossible for people to insure bike paths and things like that. There's a lot of a lot working against us here, but I just wanted to try to set an example, not pointing fingers. I'm not saying this is for everyone. I'm just saying, okay, I've got 125 extra bucks. What am I going to do with that? Only because instead of getting in the van to go run errands, I went on my bike. Pretty pretty simple. And by the way, let me remind you. I'm at 7,000 feet. And for me to go in and back from town minimum 20 miles. And part of that is on tarmac, part of, that, part of that is on paved bike trail, and part of that is on um, improved, unpaved bike trail, which is really short, steep, punchy climb after climb to get into, into town and to get back from town. So it's not the easiest riding in the world. And also, like I mentioned, it was 17 degrees this morning. We've had highs 
at certain days in the 20s. We've had highs in the 30s, and we've had highs in the 40s. 40s, doable. Upper 30s, doable. Really, 30s in general are doable. When it's in the 20s, that's where it gets really hard because for me, it's the hands and feet. Hands, feet is are really hard to keep warm no matter what. I kind of need those like things that you mount on the handlebars that block the wind. I think that's probably the next step for me. I don't want those, but I kind of, I think they're going to be mandatory at some point. But anyway, that's where we're at on the bike scene. Uh, point number six is about COP27, the climate conference that's going on. And I just have three words here written in parentheses in all caps, blah, blah, blah. It's the same people, the same, quote, leadership from around the world talking about carbon emissions and 1.5 degrees. Well, we've already blown past 1.5. Well, it, it, it would be a miracle if we, could, if we could keep the temperature increase to 3 degrees, and I don't think we can do that either. I think we're looking at somewhere in the 5.6 to 6 range, which will bring with it complete and utter disaster, especially for anyone living around a coastal area right now. I don't think any of these leaders care. I just do not think there's anything in it for them. They're all old and they'll all be dead before the music stops. And there's just no sense of urgency. And when you flip on the other side and you look at these 20-something protesters and you look at the how the politicians look at them in a level of disgust, you just understand how disconnect. there's such a massive disconnect between global leadership and the realities of climate change. And I just don't see anything coming from these conferences. I think these, these politicians are just down the river so far. And again, they're old. They know, I mean, Biden will be long gone before uh, the music stops. He will. All of the current political leaders in the world, with the exception of like the Justin Trudeau's, who's relatively young, and you look at the woman who's in, I want to say, New Zealand, uh, well, the woman in New Zealand, but also the woman in, I want to say, Finland, who's the super young one, the one in her 30s that got caught dancing in a video or drinking or something, and the world stopped, and everyone, all the purists were like, all the pseudo-puritanical people were outraged that this 30-year-old would dance and drink with her friends. I was like, Jesus, what a buzzkill these people are. But I don't have any faith in the COP27 folks. I really don't. I don't know what's happening with climate change. I'm not entirely sure what we can do. I think I kind of have this sinking suspicion that the, you know, we, we've kind of edged over the, um, it's like paddling into a wave that is far beyond your ability. This has happened to me. And this is a terrifying moment, by the way. So if you do any kind of surfing, and there's a book about surfing called Barbarian Days, which won the Pulitzer Prize for autobiography. And it's William something. He's the guy that writes for The New Yorker, I think. It's an amazing book. Even if you don't know anything about surfing or don't care about surfing, it's a great book because it's so well-written and he's a good storyteller. But there's a couple of passages in the book that really jumped out at me. One was about Ocean Beach in California, Northern California. And Ocean Beach sort of is on the south side of the bridge, and it's, um, it, it, it is what I would describe as a heavy place to surf. I would never surf there, ever, under any circumstances. Number one, the water is freezing cold. Number two, the currents there, because of the water sucking into the bay, it's terrifying. Even from the clifftop, you're looking down, and you're like, that looks like no fun at all. That looks like pure death for me. Number three, heavy sets, heavy weight. The Pacific waves are... You know, if you've never surfed in the Pacific, it's the real deal. It's cold. It's heavy. It's dangerous. Um, and it's not like little waves in the Atlantic or surfing the Caribbean or surfing some warm water, clear water spot somewhere. It's freezing cold. So Ocean Beach is terrifying. And finally, it's white shark breeding ground. So no, I'm never going to surf there. But the author talks about going up there with a friend who lives there. And the friend, is his entire life is devoted to surfing all the time. And the author knows that if the swell comes up in the night, his friend is going to call him in the morning, and he has to go. He has to go out. And the, uh, and the reality of not sleeping a wink because you're terrified that you're going to have to get in the water, and it's going to be well beyond your skill level. I have been in that exact same situation on a much smaller scale, surfing with people who are way better than me, and then getting to the beach and looking out and these people saying, hmm, kind of big out there. And I'm like, that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear, oh, it's flat, you know, and there's no one out. And I don't see any sharks. 
and and here's a brand new wetsuit, you know, and that's kind of what I want to hear. And so when you hear the polar opposite, you're like, this isn't fun anymore. Now I'm terrified. And then as you go out there and you get into these swells, and a great thing about surfing the Pacific and a lot of other places in the world, but I grew up surfing in Texas, which doesn't really have set waves. When you're surfing in the Pacific, you get these sets. And so there are lulls between the sets that allow you to paddle out to get ready to get in position. So when the sets come, you can pick your wave and take off. The problem is when you're not confident out there and you're not that skilled and you paddle into a set like that, there is a moment of saying, I, I kind of have to take this wave because if you get too far in, you can't turn around and paddle back out, especially if you are on a board that you cannot duck dive. So, and that's, this is a couple of times this has happened to me. I was on boards that were too long for me to duck dive. So you, you have to commit. That's what climate change feels like. It feels like when you turn, spin that board towards the shore and you're looking and saying to yourself, I don't have a choice here. This thing's coming and I'm either going to get drilled or I've got to try to paddle into this thing and save myself by getting into the, into shore. That's kind of the way I feel about climate change is I feel like that's that wave, that massive set wave is behind us and the lift on our board has started and I just popped up and we are about to drop down the face and this could go one of two ways you're either going to go over the falls and get sucked over and pounded into the bottom which is kind of my feeling about what's going to happen to the planet or somehow miraculously you're going to dig that rail and find the shoulder and do a you know backside rail grab and like some guy on the beach is going to photograph you and you're going to end up on the cover of surfer magazine and then you're probably going to get divorced and end up with like some hawaiian tropic uh swimsuit model and then make a ton of money and then develop some sort of weird problem and lose it all and hit rock bottom so that's kind of my take on the whole thing okay point number seven for those of you who don't know there is a social network called twitter and it's been around about two weeks. No, not really. Twitter's been around forever. I first heard about Twitter in Amsterdam in like 2006 or seven or something, early days of Blurb. I was at a creative festival with the founder of Blurb. It was before I was working for them. She brought me over there um, to attend these events and also do media. And so we were doing interviews and all that kind of stuff. And um, someone said Twitter, and we kind of looked at each other like, what's that? And that's what was my introduction to Twitter. There was an innocence to it, like all the social networks at the time before it had become a marketing machine. And people were literally just posting what they were doing or what they were eating. And I was kind of like, I don't have any interest in this. But I signed up for an account. I still have it. It's one of the only social networks I have. Um, Blurb asked me to keep it back in the day when I deleted the rest of my social account. So I still have it. But what's happened is we all know that it was purchased by Elon Musk. And um, it has kind of unraveled since then. But that's not really what I want to talk about. Uh, we kind of figured it would unravel. And some of the things he did and said are horrible because he is who he is, and he has he's incredibly wealthy, has a ton of power, and probably not a lot of close friends because anytime I see these big tech people doing things like he's doing and saying things, you just realize he doesn't have close friends around him who can say, stop doing that. You're being an, an asswipe. Stop doing that and stop saying that. But they don't because they're so egotistical and so wealthy and powerful that they just basically have detached themselves from the rest of society. Couple that with the fact that even if you don't like this dude, you have to admit that he is doing things that no one else in the world is doing. He's developing technologies. He's firing rocket boosters that land after they've burned out and, and can be reused. He's putting astronauts in space. I'm using his internet system right now. Starlink is what I'm using, and it works really well. And it took approximately 30 seconds to set up, and that's me, people, me setting it up. So if I can do it, anyone can do it. What bothers me about this whole thing, not what bothers me, that's the wrong, wrong phrase, wrong description. What is just mind-blowingly idiotic is watching photographers melt down on Twitter about the platform. Let me just say this. If Twitter is an integral part of your life, you need to rethink your life. Listening to photographers whine on Twitter about what Musk is doing and what's going to happen to their beloved Twitter. Are we going to, is everyone going to stay here? Is everyone going to go to Instagram? Is everyone going to have to go to another network? Is everyone reading my newsletter? Is everyone doing this? Is everyone doing that? You know what? F you. Go away. Who cares? If Twitter goes away, it goes away. You will not lose 
one wink of sleep over the fact that Twitter is away because 99.999% of you do not gain anything from Twitter other than you are using it as a therapy session for your insecurity, your ego, ranting about things that you think you know about when you actually don't, and frankly, no one cares if you know about them anyway, or horrible, shameless, pandering posts to get people to like whatever it is you're posting. It's in, Twitter is embarrassing. If you're simply using Twitter as a way of, of getting a, a headline news, fine. But if you're going on there and clearly pandering to build following, you're an embarrassment. And by the way, if you're doing that, everybody you know is talking about you behind your back because this is what happens. Oh, you, did you see so-and-so on Twitter? That's embarrassing. This is the conversations that happen. Trust me, people, and I've been seeing this for a long time. I've actually been in brand meetings, not with Blurb, but in other brands, where they talked about people they wanted to work with, and when their name came up, they would say, someone in that marketing team would say, oh, that dude's embarrassment, embarrassing. Like, do not, we're not working with that guy. We're not working with her. We're not working with him. They are either sellouts or they're panderers or they never do anything. All they do is talk about doing stuff. And there's plenty of these people on Twitter as well. I'm going to do X, Y, I'm going to climb Mount Everest, you know, and six, and they, they, they basically tag every single brand that could possibly assist them on an Everest climb. And if you're in a marketing department on a brand and somebody calls you out on Twitter, for the most part, you got to respond. And that's what these idiots know. So they tag, 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 and then the brands respond. And then because this person is hoping that the brands say, oh, we think you're a genius. Here's a free jacket. Well, most of the time, the brands behind the scenes are going, what an a-hole. Don't give that idiot anything. And so six months goes by. Is he any closer to climbing Everest? No. Has he made any plans? No. Has he bought a jacket? No. Is he ever going to climb Everest? No. This happens all the time. So if Twitter goes away... Here's the bad part. That means thousands of people lose their jobs. And when you hear these douches at the high levels of tech talking about something called disruption, disruption is a, is a detached high-level tech word for destruction. And with, with upsetting an industry comes job loss. So if Twitter goes away, you have thousands of employees who are losing their job. They're losing the money to pay for daycare. They're losing health insurance. And for you, those of you who don't live in the United States, our healthcare system is so corrupt. If you lose your healthcare, you can completely drain your entire life savings paying for healthcare. You're forced to have it. And so my financial planner, every time we talk to my financial planner, she says the same thing. You know, stay on target. You guys are doing okay. The one risk you have, healthcare. So that's our entire life savings can be sucked away from healthcare, even if you don't need it. So when people talk about, you know, oh, Twitter goes away, who, you know, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in some sense. But the reality is, underneath the hype and craziness and drama that people are addicted to, is a bunch of people getting paid to do their job. And that's what sucks about what's happening is he already laid off whatever. Facebook's laid off 12,000. They're not laying off to pre-COVID levels. Remember that. That's another thing that seems to get lost is that people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe Facebook laid off 11,000 people. Well, since COVID, they hired 500,000 people or some crazy number like that. So none of these companies are back to pre-pandemic levels, but yes, they're culling because you know when you have unrealistic projections and you miss those projections, somebody's head's going to fall. And that's what's happening. The, the, the good side of Twitter going away is we can eliminate some of this useless, idiotic, self-induced drama that people are literally addicted to. We know that. It's not a big shock saying physical, physical addiction to the dopamine you get when you post and you get responses. Twitter's horrible for that. You know, you have people who are on there all day, every day, posting all day, every day. And the craziest part to me is that some of these people are really talented. They're really good at whatever it is they do, and there's no reason for them to do that. There's no reason for them to be on, on social at all. They don't need it, but they physically need it. 
because they are so hooked on that platform. So Twitter, whatever. Point number eight, posting on social media does not mean you are actually getting involved. So let me explain why I'm saying this. And I've probably talked about this before, but when I was, so I went to a lecture last week and it was a photography related lecture about war. And the person who was giving the lecture talked about, they spent eight years working on an exhibition about war. And in that eight year process, talked to all kinds of people associated with war foreign correspondents, war photographers, military people, soldiers returning, the whole deal. Tried to work from every angle. Spent eight years and was using the term embedded. And embedded means that if you're a photographer and you're trying to cover the war, let's say you were in Afghanistan or Iraq, you couldn't just roll out into the field most of the time. There were some people who were doing that, but it was, it was kind of rare in comparison. To cover the U.S. military, you had to be, quote-unquote, embedded. You had to be officially embedded with a unit. And then the unit was responsible for doing their daily tasks and doing whatever that unit is responsible for. But they're also kind of responsible for you as a journalist, which is a big burden. And some of these people, um, there was talk of, he's a seven photographer. I'm blanking on his name right now. He did an amazing book on Afghanistan. And at one point in Afghanistan, or could have been Iraq, I'm sorry. I don't remember which which conflict it was. He's going, he trying, he's trying to get to the top of a minaret and the squad he's with says, Hey, you two guys, you take Ashley is his name. You take Ashley up to the top of the minaret. And as they're going to the, up to this minaret, the soldier in front of him takes a round in the head, boom, just like, and now he's covered in blood from this soldier who's just killed in front of him. That had a huge impact on him. So this person who's giving the lecture is going through story after story after story. And someone in the back of the room, you know, when it comes time for the Q&A, she stands up and says, look, you know, I get up every morning in bed and turn on my phone, and that makes me embedded too. And I was just sitting there like, whoa, um, how does someone make that jump? And here's the thing. I'm not knocking this person. I totally understand where she was coming from saying like you have this thing in your hand and it does in some weird way make you feel like you're connected to these things but the other side of me was like this person may not have any understanding what's actually happening in these places uh because if they did they probably wouldn't have said that but she said it you know again not knocking her she has, it's her right and the person giving the talk was like to her credit said you know you can't make that jump you know, laying in bed on your phone is not having the blood of the soldier in front of you blow back on your face because his head just got hit with a rifle round. And you're, you know, taking mortar fire and you're living in the trenches. And, you know, she referenced a photo by Louis Sink over the LA Times, the Marlboro Marine, the famous, the fame, one of the famous war images of the last 25 years. And, you know, she's like, Cinco's face looked like the Marlboro Marines' face. He had blood on it. He was covered in dirt. You know, these, this is not armchair football here. This is like going into an NFL game as a civilian, and they go, hey, put these pads on and go, you're offensive line. That's what it's like getting into these situations. So you're, if you're sitting at home thinking that you're perusing your favorite news site, thinking you're getting an idea of what it's like, and then thinking that ranting your opinion on a social network is quote unquote being involved is delusional. It is completely and utterly delusional. So stop doing that. Last point I want to make. I had something interesting happen on a positive note. I'm sitting here in Santa Fe putting out the vibe and um, I do this, this event and I've got a table of blur books. And so I put, uh, out of a variety of books. I put out books that I would classify as expected copies of the books. These are like sort of um, books that I know that most people who come to, the, to come to look at blurb stuff are going to want to see. They're like big hardcover photo books with pro-line paper and dust jackets and, you know, kind of the classic book. And there's plenty of people out there that go, that's the book I want. That's the kind of thing I want. Great. Here they are. Get your, get your mitts on them. Get your paws on them. But then I brought a bunch of other books just for fun. I bought a bunch of my own one-off art books. Some of these are small run, 
like less than 50 copies, and some are editions of one, meaning the book will only exist in one copy. And um, a lot of photographers who are stuck in the traditional ideology, the traditional methodology, they're the ones who are being waiting around to be told what to do. They will often look at edition of one books and say, well, that's ridiculous. Those are, why would you ever do that? You know, there's only one copy. That's a joke. I'm going to sell 10,000 copies. I'm going to get famous. I'm going to make money. They often don't have any clue what it's the illustrated book publishing world is like. And so they kind of poo-poo all these books or look down on them. The small run books tend to get pretty good acknowledgement because when you say someone like, oh, we did 50 copies and, you know, whatever, they're signed and numbered, that kind of makes sense to a lot of people. But it's the one-offs that just get floor people. So I bring these things. And um, this woman walks up to the booth. And I don't recognize her because they made everyone wear N95s, which was smart because they had hundreds of people flying in from around the world. And they said that in the write-up. They said, look, we got all these people coming in. It makes sense. The numbers are rising again. We're going into winter. We don't want to be known as a super spreader. So just wear an N95. No big deal. No one complained. No one made a fuss. It was pretty simple which is the way it should have been all along, and we blew it. So I'm sitting there, and this woman walks up. She's got her mask on. I don't recognize her. And she's looking at books on the table, and she comes to this one book I made back in 2007, and she looks at it, and she looks at me, and she goes, how, how much? And I said, oh, that's not for sale. Kind of looked at me funny. Kept moving. She comes to this next book I did. It was a collaboration, two other people. And she looks at it, and she flips through it. She goes, whoa, this is really different. And she goes, how much? And I was like, not for sale. And then her, she really gives me a look like, what are you talking about? So then there's another book, which is an edition of one. It was a collaboration between myself and one other person. And I said, let me explain what this is. And I picked up the book and I handed it to her and I flipped up some of the pages and I explained what it was. And she goes, whoa, this is really interesting. And she goes, how much? And I said, not for sale. And then she looked at me and she goes, are you telling me that you are just sitting on these books. And I said, yes. And she goes, what sense does that make? And I said, well, if you knew me, you'd probably know that it would probably make a little more sense if you knew my ideology about the world. So she laughed. We ended up talking for another half an hour. And so now she's been there for like an hour. We're talking books. We're talking this. We're talking that. And I was like, may I ask your name? <clears throat> and she told me her name. And I was like, oh my God, this is like one of the most famous, most important curators in the world, basically. I think she was, she was, Time Magazine gave her the most important curator in the world title. I think that was, I could be mistaken, but I think that happened at some point. And I was like, and I told her, I said, your name comes up all the time and I cannot believe I've never met you. So we talked, great time. She gets out a pen and paper and says, here's the name of a museum director. He's going to want these books. And so it looks like between now and the end of the year, I will be visiting with them in another city where the museum is located, and there is a chance, maybe even a pretty good chance, that they acquire my books for the museum collection, which is, by the way, one of the best museum collections and one of the best book collections in the world. They are known for this. And so... I was blown away, but here's the moral of the story, is that if you're a photographer, if you're a creative, if you are living a creative life that is beholden to the traditional models of the world, you need to rethink your position because the traditional models in many ways are broken and they've been broken for decades. And the reason they're still working is that there are so many people beholden psychologically to these old methodologies and old pathways. And it's not to say the pathways aren't viable. They still are, depending on the deal, depending on what the goal is. But all I did was take a standard blurb product, had it printed, and modified it. One of the books that she was interested in is just a straight blurb product that anyone listening to this right now can get. And oh, by the way, it was less than $3. There was not an object she looked at that was more than $10. So I'm not talking about fancy books. I'm not talking about expensive books. I'm not even talking about hardcover books. I'm talking about basic items that are available to everyone. And all I did was either do it myself or collaborated with people 
who modified the book. That's it. You would have thought I've reinvented the wheel. It's not true. It's just doing something interesting and original instead of doing what everyone else is doing. And by the way, I didn't build those to be contrarian. I built them and in, in some cases worked with other people who built them in unique ways because that's what felt right. It just felt interesting to do something different, to, to play, to experiment, to try something new. And lo and behold, those are the things that the museum world says, that's relevant, that's interesting, love to have those. So for those of you out there, when you say, like I can say I have work in the George Eastman House and the LA, LA County Museum of Art, the Santa Barbara Museum of Art, and then potentially at some point I'll be able to add this facility to that list. And in certain circles, that list has relevance. It has a lot of meaning of people saying, oh, you're in four or five museum collections. I'm also in, a co- in collections in a couple of other countries that I just completely spaced on until right this second. I, I, there's a couple in Latin America. I've, I've worked in a few museums down there as well. In certain circles for certain people, that's a big deal. You know, for me at this point in my life, not so much. I love the fact that it's happening and that there's interest and that I can learn from this story and then share what I've learned with other people because maybe it will help them go along that path. But yeah, so that's been happening. God, I timed this perfectly. That is literally one hour exactly. So I think that's probably a good place to start. I got to go take PACO for a walk before he uh, disowns me or decides to gnaw on my leg. But um, I appreciate you joining me here. And uh, I will be back with uh, subsequent episodes when I can. Kind of sporadic these days, people. Kind of sporadic. So uh, I appreciate you being here, and I'll talk to you next time.